0: This is the third episode about the impact of type 2 inflammation in patients who suffer from severe asthma, chronic rhinosinusitis or atopic dermatitis. Today we will discuss atopic dermatitis and therefore we have Professor Alan Irvine from Trinity College in Dublin to join us. Friday the 12th of November he gave a lecture about atopic dermatitis which you can listen to now. 'm um,
1: really a pleasure to be with you. I was asked to prepare a lecture which initially looked at the kind of current treatment landscapes and and the near future landscapes. The reason I have near future in is because it 's really um a rapidly emerging field and because of licensing and then individual country level access agreements, some of these treatments may not yet be available in Denmark or you may have some health technology uh, boxes to tick or priorities or orders in which you're you're expected to to um, prescribe them. So I've done a little bit more of a general view rather than specifically tailoring it uh, to Denmark. And then the second uh, topic, I was asked to talk a little bit about topical corticosteroid use. And of course, Mehdi, uh knows more about this than nearly anyone on the planet. So if we look at the main pathomechanisms in atopic dermatitis, if we think about the skin barrier The dysregulated immunity, with type 2 immunity being uh, really dysregulated, and the microbiome, all of which come together to produce atopic dermatitis and uh, itch as the dominant symptom. Of these three pathways, the immune pathway is the most druggable, uh, the most easily tractable, the most easily targeted by drugs. And that's where we're going to focus a little bit. So just to look at systemic immunosuppressive drugs, the, the main way these are used and have been used historically, and what we're talking about here are cyclosporin, methotrexate, uh, less often azathioprine and mycophenolate, mofetil, or even oral corticosteroids for short doses, um, which we don't recommend generally. But short-term use of these other immune suppressants, they're they're useful for severe exacerbations or refractory atopic term, and they can be used for transitional therapy. But what we're faced with when we use these drugs is there's there's very limited uh, high quality evidence of safety and efficacy. Uh, they've been used largely by custom and practice and of course they have transformed many lives but when you compare them to what is becoming available, the evidence base is, is much weaker and there's relative uh, relatively no comparative studies head-to-head studies between these there's just one that I'm aware of between azitharapine the and methotrexate and the use is limited by a number of toxicities, warnings, and precautions that are, that are drug-specific, and they, there is a need for ongoing monitoring with them. So we're going to move into away from some of those traditional therapies which still have their uses, which still are helpful, good, good in low-income countries as well, of course. And then I'm going to discuss novel therapies. And we're going to start off with monoclonal antibodies that target the type 2 pathway or the TH2 pathway. And the ones that we're going to look at most are dupilumab, Tralokinumab and lebrichizumab. and there are a couple of others that are in this pathway. First, instance in monoclonal antibodies, those that target uh, IL13, or those that target IL13 and IL4, and finally uh, those that target IL31, which is the main pruritogen, the main uh, antibody, uh, main uh, cytokine that drives itch. So, firstly, let's look at Dupilumab. Dupilumab inhibits the signalling of IL4 and IL13. By targeting the joint uh, receptor for IL four and IL thirteen, it doesn't target the uh, the IL thirteen receptor alpha two or the decoy receptor. The um, the classic red uh, long term study in in dupilumab versus placebo. This is three hundred milligrams weekly plus topical corticosteroids for. Uh, I, for and two-weekly dupilumab compared. And what we're seeing here is uh, easy 75 responder rates at week 16 of around 65 to 70%. We see it at 69% here, and all of the studies fall roughly in that region. But by 52 weeks, we still have uh, a high responder rate at long-term follow-up. And these data were uh, f- a follow-up study on the registration studies for dupilumab. If we look at more recent data, then looking at younger patients who are included, and these are adolescents defined by 12 to 17 years, uh, again with dupilumab on the 300 milligrams four-weekly or a weight-based dose of 200 or 300 milligrams every two weeks. The four-weekly one is orange and the the blue uh, triangles are the two-weekly dose based on weight. And we look uh, in the the top left, we see the percentage change in easy scores. We see, again, quite a rapid reduction in easy scores, uh, maxing out uh, at around 8 to 16 weeks and fairly steady after that, 65% reduction in those scores. If we look at the peak pruritus score with the treatment arm, we see very early separation by two weeks from placebo, and that continues right out to, to 16 weeks with some plateauing of response uh, at this around 10, 11 or 12 weeks. And we see similar patterns for the POEM, that's a patient-related outcome score, and the the DLQI, that's an age-appropriate one. So we see fairly similar efficacy studies in this. This is a monotherapy trial. There's no topical corticosteroids in the the adolescent trial. So they're still getting quite uh, uh, similar results. If you look at adverse effects, uh only one uh patient uh discontinued the study drug and that was somebody on placebo the other adverse side, adverse reactions are really very few in there and there's not a great deal of separation between placebo and dupilumab conjunctivitis of course is one that will come to if we look at in- infections and infestations or herpetic viral reactions again we don't see any significant differences between the uh, the groups it could be argued that there's actually a lot fewer herpes virus infections in the um, uh, in the two weekly dose but these are quite small numbers headache we see they're fairly consistent uh, across them so let's have a look at long term safety data And one of the things, uh, the signals that comes out in dupilumab, of course, is conjunctivitis. So this is a combination of up to three years, either through open label extension studies or and the CRONUS studies through fifty two weeks. So this is a combination of these two studies from uh, of dupilumab. The conjunctivitis rate in the one hundred forty eight weeks is just under twelve new patients per hundred patient years. The longer uh, term uh chronos study which is obviously 52 weeks compared to 148 weeks we see 23 new patients per 100 patient years in dupedumab plus topical corticosteroid so these these numbers bounce around a little bit most of them were mild uh, it's rare to stop the drug because of conjunctivitis about one in 200 patients in these long-term extension trials stop the drug because of conjunctivitis We can learn quite a bit from registries, and there's a number of registries that are set up, um, and some of you are involved in them, and they're right across North America, Europe, and in Japan, uh, a a range of these. So this is Treat Netherlands, and these are real-world data and quality of life data in people who received dupilumab out to week 84. Of course, registry data is real-world data. It's not like a clinical trial where you have uh, patient dispositions and the number needed to treat type analyses. These are people who stayed on drug, uh, obviously, and there's no placebo control either, uh, obviously, in uh, uh, real world registries, but you can still learn a lot from them. The easy scores and a follow up time up to again, these are 84 weeks uh, with the easy uh, of a zero to 72 maximum. The scores coming down quite dramatically and continuing to improve The the. the mean score continuing to improve even at week 80 so we don't know is that does that mean that the better responders stay on drug and they continue to uh, to give you better results as you continue through but there's still a continued improvement for many similarly with the poem score there's a little maximum improvement around week 30 but fairly good consistent long-term data out to 84 weeks just under two years and the dlqi interestingly has a, a a pattern here where in this the last 20 weeks of the study, the, the DLQI really improved dramatically. So we're seeing people in the real world who stay on drug, continue to like it, and continue to improve their quality of life uh, and their POEM scores. Let's just look at conjunctivitis by indication. So the top panel in this are all uh, long and short-term studies of dupilumab, randomized controlled trials for atopic dermatitis. So we have a solo one and two, that's the pooled monotherapy uh, data. That was the classic phase two data. And then the Kronos trial, phase three, and the CAFE, uh, which was uh, people who couldn't uh, tolerate or ha- had couldn't respond to cyclosporin. And then we have the solo continue. The conjunctivitis rates bounce around a little bit. They're probably somewhere around 10% uh, as a mean, and some are quite outlyingly high. That's probably down to definitional uh, MEDRA terms, so they, how people define that in the trial. In contrast with some of the other type 2 diseases where uh, dupilumab has been tried, for example, asthma or chronic rhinosinusitis with nasal polyps, the incidence of conjunctivitis is really vanishingly low. And the distinction between dupilumab and placebo is pretty uh, indistinguishable. For example, some of these trials, conjunctivitis rates are higher in placebo than in dupilumab. Uh, or or equal to it. So it does appear to be that conjunctivitis is a very disease specific uh, signal. And what we see with other data are that people who have more severe atopic derm when they start ha- tend to have more problems with conjunctivitis. Uh, people who have had previous atopic eye disease often have some more problems too. The second uh, type two antibody is lebrachizumab. It is a different mechanism of action. Binding to IL 13. It allows IL 13 to engage with receptors, but it inhibits the formation of the IL 4, IL 13 receptor complex due to steric hindrance. This is one of the phase two trials for lebrachizumab. It's a dose ranging study as well. So we, it's a combination of two and four weekly doses from 1, 2, 5, Q4 weekly up to 250, Q2 weekly versus placebo. And we're going to have a look at the uh, outcome measures here. I'm going to specifically look at the top right-hand panel that's been published in Dama Dermatology last week, EZ75 responses uh, at the higher dose, which is the 250Q2 weekly, uh, which is probably their, the dose that's going to be carried forward. EZ75 is in the low 60s uh, at week 12 and week 16. So they're in the same ballpark range as, um, as dupilumab. Let's look at tralukinumab, which works differently again. Tralukinumab binds soluble IL-13, so it inhibits it binding to the uh, the conjoint receptor, but also to the decoy receptor as well. And for extra 1, extra 2, and extra 3, the range of trials that looked at um, tralukinumab and topical corticosteroids, so these are combination studies, the original two extra trials, the easy 75 scores were in the mid-30s, uh, extra three. This was tralokinumab. Same top dose Q2 weekly with topical corticosteroids. When it's included, the uh, results are a little bit better in the in the mid fifties, re- achieving easy seventy five, and in the high eighties, high thirties, achieving uh, clear or nearly clear IGA scores of zero or one. One interesting thing uh, that, the, that Leo did when he, with the uh, extra trials, extra five, which is looking at uh, vaccine responses. Obviously, that's very timely at the moment with COVID and with people being concerned about their antibody responses and how well they do if they're vaccinated. The vaccine seroconversion was uh, totally unaffected for these vaccines. That's meningococcal and tetanus at week 16 in people who were on tralicinamab. Triluc- It was a non-inferior. And of course, there are other vaccines that would be worth exploring, COVID, uh, namely uh, one with the flu and varicella. And then how do older people respond? So there's a few questions that still need to be answered, but it's encouraging. IL-31 is the key proteogen. It's the most itchy cytokine, if you like thinking about it that way. So nemalizumab binds to the IL-31 receptor and it uh, inhibits um, uh, prevention of these prevents these uh, two parts of the receptor, OSMR and IL-33 receptor uh, binding to each other and signaling downstream through JAK1 and 2. Uh, this is a phase 3 trial which was published in the New England last year with pneumalizumab versus uh, placebo, both with topical corticosteroids, and that's important when you see the objective scores um, and its uh, Q4 weekly dosing. Easy scores were a little lower in this trial at 23, 24, most uh, systemic therapies are in; they have a mean easy score of about thirty. The baseline easy score responses were certainly um, lower than they were with any of the previous monoclonals that we've shown you. But what we did see uh, here was a change in baseline in pre visual analog scale was really quite dramatic at week sixteen for nemalizumab versus placebo. But if you look at the baseline, and remember these are as observed data with topical corticosteroids. There's not a great separation between placebo and uh, pneumolizumab for objective signs of atopic derm. And then if we look at it another way and look at those who achieved a more than two-point reduction in IgA, was, there's was no difference. Very few achieved EZ90 on, on placebo or on uh, Nemo, both with topical corticosteroids. And the EZ75 scores were not dramatically different and quite low. So it's a drug that's very good for itch. But not yet uh, very effective in clearing atopic term. Let's pivot a little bit for the next section to small molecules. And by small molecules, we're going to be focusing on jack inhibitors. Jack inhibitor biology is extremely complex. They're expressed on multiple cells and multiple receptors uh, for intracellular signaling. And they bind, uh, they, they, say they, correct, they allow signaling for multiple cytokines. I'm going to make it a little simpler to understand by just Blacking out the ones that are not relevant for AD, and there are some that are obviously very relevant for AD. For example, IL four signaling through Jack one and Jack three, IL twenty two, which is important in lichenification, Jack one and tyrosine kinase two. So there are three Jack jak recept- three Jacks, Jack one, two, and three, and tyrosine kinase type two. They make up the four in the Jack family. We have IL thirty one and IL thirteen have a more complex. Trimer with Jack one 2, and triagin kinase, and interferon, which is uh, involved in amplification of disease later on. There are three uh, molecules that are active in clinical trials or have already been registered in various countries and, and territories. In the moment, the EMEA have licensed baricitinib and upadicitinib and abrocitinib, as we speak, in November 2021 has it a positive CHMP approval but not yet full marketing authorization so these are these are coming through. Uh, baricitinib is selective for JAK1 and 2. Abrocitinib is selective on JAK1 as is Upadacitinib, but none of these are none of these are entirely specific. That's important. If you have a high enough dose, you'll begin to inhibit other JAK uh, molecules as well. The data from upadacitinib, the measure of one and two trial, where we're seeing uh, two doses of upadacitinib versus placebo, um, and it's a well-conducted trial, two replicate trials, exactly the same patient dis- demographics and disposition, but running in parallel. Easy one, easy scores in measure of one of 80% and measure of two in, in uh, over 70%. Uh, great reductions in uh, uh, validated iga scores too easy ninety which is a relatively novel uh, outcome a very high number in in measure of one sixty five percent achieved an easy ninety pars uh, scores high numbers who got more than a four point reduction so these are very high efficacy studies that and maybe they're resetting the bar for efficacy but of course Efficacy and safety are are two sides of the coin, and we need to learn a lot more about where JAK inhibitors will fit in the in the treatment paradigm of atopic term. The safety data that was in uh, the uh, eczema herpeticum, for example, we know that JAK inhibitors are do uh, increase susceptibility to herpetic infections, around a two percent signal for herpes zoster, uh, but we're also seeing some and. Um, in the placebo, just two cases in measure of two in placebo. So there's a slight increase in zoster, a small increase in eczema herpeticum. However, for these studies, uh, people who had had severe eczema herpeticum or severe zoster were excluded. So th- this is not necessarily a fully representative set because every jack inhibitor trial will limit people who have had severe herpetic disease. The next uh, most frequent treatment emerging event in JAK inhibitors in general is acne. It's a signal uh, that's in some ways not especially dose-dependent. We're seeing it a little bit higher in the 30 milligrams versus the 15 milligrams. Rates of 13, 15, and 17%, and they're significantly different from placebo. Let's look at a comparative study. So this is abrocitinib versus dupilumab, two doses and with a placebo. So it's a a 16-week trial with a follow-up published in the New England Journal earlier this year. And what we see with abracitinib is we get a more rapid response compared to dupilumab uh, at the top dose, but we get dupilumab eventually catching up and passing out uh, uh, abracitinib top dose uh, towards the end of the study period. New England uh, allowed it to be done through histograms, really. And we're seeing that top dose of abracitinib probably uh, shades... Uh, dupilumab and which shades the bottom dose of abracitinib so dupilumab splitting the difference uh, at 16 weeks in this truly comparative trial, there's no comparative trials of baricitinib I should say that so um, the safety uh, profile is quite reassuring, there is a dose increase in zoster in uh, abrocetinab again consistent with the class and also a, a, an acne signal as well which we're seeing here a little lower than the upadacitinib acne signal for for abrocitinib. Although these are not head to head comparative trials, we do see a slightly higher acne signal. Let's look at baricitinib, which is licensed in Europe um, and is used, but there's no head to head trials for baricitinib. And uh, this is Breeze eighty four phase three trial. This is a combination trial baricitinib uh, along with uh, topical corticosteroids, and this is a similar uh, criterion uh, in that. To, to CAFE in a way for Dubin that they, these were people who hadn't responded or couldn't have um, cyclosporin. The efficacy outcomes uh, for IgA0 or 1 at week 16, these are lower numbers, around 22%. This is a combination trial. And then if we look at uh, other efficacy t- outcomes, for example, EZ75, around 32% of people getting EZ75s with, with baricitinib at 4 milligrams, that's the top dose that's licensed in Europe. Two milligrams is also licensed in Europe for special populations and uh, for people who are tapering off. So baricitinib is, is coming in with easy scores of around 75. So we we'll, it's more modest than the other JAK inhibitors. And we just need to see where that uh, gets gets used. I know it's used in Denmark um, at the moment as one of the earlier interventions on your uh, therapeutic trial. Just a reminder that... Uh, these pathways are present on dorsal root ganglia and they are one of these, these were molecules that were in trials long before Brian Kim unlocked uh, why this uh, was so important in itch signaling. So he discovered this after the trials were already initiated. But what we know is now that the AL4 receptor is on dorsal root ganglia. It it does signal through Jack one and Jack 2 So that's why the biologics and the Jacks work for itch. And it's probably why... Uh, uh, Jack's uh, small molecules work extremely quickly—the same day or within hours of a dose for each. This is just to go back to a patient I saw recently who's on methotrexate and give you just a small bit of information on these old therapies. A patient who was really grateful for methotrexate and did beautifully on it. And why does how does methotrexate work? So I just wanted to sh- share this from Cell Host and Microbe earlier this year. This is looking at patients with rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, not a topic dermatitis, but obviously methotrexate has uh, probably got similar mechanisms of action. And what they find is that people who had a profound uh, gut microbiome change on methotrexate had much better improvement uh, on that drug. And we know that uh, prokaryotes also have uh, the same metabolic pathways that methotrexate works on are, are preserved in prokaryotes. So that is perhaps... How the, this drug works in humans as well uh, for atopic derm and it might be why it's a relatively slow acting drug the pipelines um is extensive and um, there may be some favors that favor jack inhibitors over monoclonals but by and large not many uh, at the moment uh, monoclonals still are preferred the uh, topical corticosteroids they're the mainstay of management uh, for mild disease they've been around 70 years I just want to say a little bit about steroid failure. People use too little, too potency is too low, too short a duration, or the regimen is too complex, or there's steroid phobia. Pharmacists getting in the way. And just to remind people of the fingertip unit so you, you, you apply enough and that you learn this when you're in, in your prescribing practice, it's really important, and that you work out how much people need and give them exactly how much you expect them to use. If there's uh, no infection, pick one strength for the face and the body and know that and learn it and stay consistently with it with your teams and then know the relative potencies through vasoconstriction tests or others and then manage all of these and keep the regimens really simple. Keep it simple with topical corticosteroids. A brief study that we did on kids, we showed here, and it's published in the BJD, that when you use topical corticosteroids and you look at plasma biomarkers, you greatly improve these. So these are in infants. So there must be something about the skin leaking all of these cytokines into the body. So topical corticosteroids have a beneficial systemic effect. We
0: postulate, although that requires more work. Thank you for listening to my talk. Thank you very much, Professor Alan Irvine for an inspiring talk about the landscape for topic dermatitis and the new era of treatment options. If you are interested in watching the session with all the slides and references, you can find the recorded session at the website sanofimed.dk. Here you will also find a panel discussion where more cases are discussed. So stay tuned and thanks for listening. Stay safe.